Turning Point Coaching and Consulting presents Kairos Conversations, Connecting with Quality, the podcast. Kairos is Greek for the right time, the right season, and the right opportunity. This podcast features healthcare quality professionals who share their journeys, their advice, their struggles, how they made that transition into a new and exciting role. My heart's desire is that you find this podcast to be inspirational to you as you make your own journey. Don't forget to share this podcast with your colleagues and friends and rate us on whichever podcast platform you listen to. Thank you for being here. Today, I am here with my guest, Neil. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me, especially in your time zone. It must be pretty <laughs> late right now. Totally Absolutely. So for those who are watching, I am on the Eastern time zone and Neil is in the Pacific time zone. So things work well. Um, let's start with introducing yourself to the audience. Firstly, yes, my name is Neil Baggett and happy to be here. And I am a, a originally a physical therapist and, and, and I still think of myself as a physical therapist with about 20 years of practice. Uh, and I have pivoted over to continuous improvement, uh, which is really closely related to health healthcare quality. Very good. So tell us about continuous improvement, because I consider that to be a part of healthcare quality. So yeah. tell, tell the audience a little bit more about what that means sure. um, sure. and how you got into it. Totally. So practically speaking, continuous improvement is kind of a newer term. And uh, out in the field, a lot of people might recognize the terms like lean or Six Sigma. And there's a, a bunch of stuff like that. But right now, we're realizing that there's many flavors and it's better to kind of just lump them all together into continuous improvement or operational excellence. If I can nerd out a little bit, if you actually go to the thinkers that kind of started all this stuff, you know, in, in the lean movement, we think of, of a guy named Deming, which might be a familiar name to you. Well, yeah. Deming taught some other people and eventually became lean over in Japan and then made it back to the U.S. Then in the healthcare quality movement, as described by the IHI, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, that's a common ancestor. Deming taught some other folks. And then there was the founding of the IHI and the pediatrician who founded that. Uh, and then you have the healthcare quality. So we are basically cousins. We're basically yes. cousins. <laughs> Absolutely. So what kind of things do you continuously improve? So the way I'd like to think about it is bottom line, what we improve is process. So if you, if you think about innovation, what people usually think about first is like technology. Like when you right. think of innovation, you think about your smartphone or like uh -huh. computer or some kind of technology, but there's actually many types of innovation. And one of those types of innovation is process itself. So if you think about practicing a sport, uh, practicing your golf swing, or practicing your, your tennis racket or whatever it might be. Uh, when you first start off, your technique is totally different after years of experience, right? And so accelerating that improvement and the process for better results, doing more with less, um, that is one of the ways of looking at uh, continuous improvement. Yeah. So how did you make that transition from, okay, I'm working as a bedside physical therapist, and I don't know if you worked in acute care outpatient or yeah, what yeah, your setting yeah, was, to yeah. I want to go into this lean Six Sigma right. improvements kind of space. Totally, totally. That's a great question. Wonderful question. You know, um, and just a little bit of background. So I started off 
So in terms of physical therapy, I did a little bit of everything. I did acute care. I, I was one of the first PTs to work in the ER. I eventually did like neuro, geriatrics, home health, urgent care, orthopedics, all this stuff. I kind of see it as going from like neuro and I kind of evolved towards ortho, what? eventually got board certified and all that stuff. And, and, you know, 20 years into it, I was like, actually, the truth is, it was more like 10 years into being a clinician. I was like drowning in work, right? Mm-hmm. I like, I remember at one point, my backlog of unfinished notes was like awful. It was like something like 60 notes or something like that. I'm and, sure a lot of people can relate. Yes. And that's the worst part of it is the documentation. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not just that, but there was just like, like messages and all kinds of like firefighting going on. And, mm-hmm. and don't get me wrong. I love the work and I still love physical therapy. And I, mm-hmm. I still maintain PRN status as a physical therapist. And I intend to keep my license but, because I love it. But there was, a, and this, kind of, this might come around to like the defining point, right? There was a moment. Uh-huh. where, uh, you know, I heard about all this lean stuff. I tried a little bit of this and I even tried some of the, some, some of the stuff that it's similar to what you might be familiar with on, uh-huh. on PDCA cycles. And I was drowning in the work and I was like, I would love to apply these tools and these analyses to kind of make my work more efficient, but I just don't have the time for it. Like I don't right. have control over my schedule. I can't block off the time to do this. And it was a little disheartening, but there was something some teachers told me that I never really believed it, but there was a moment where it clicked, where I realized that every cycle of work that I do is also an experiment I can learn from. Let me, let me, uh, let me repeat that. So every cycle of work that I do is also an experiment that I learn from. That's really good. It almost sounds like you're, you've been in academia, the way you said yeah. that. <laughs> yes, yeah. And, and it was, it was such a revelation because like, I didn't really need to block off a bunch of time to do some fancy project, right? Uh-huh. Use a bunch of tools. I could start with, okay, how am I doing with this section of my note? Oh yeah, there's a little bit of duplication. I'm just going to cut that duplication out and see what happens like in a couple hours, right? <laughs> a couple patients later, I'm going to see what happens. And uh-huh. Doing that every day, shaving off one second at a time. And then before you knew it, I was, I was caught up on my notes and, and it was noticed and people were like, how did you do that? Like, what, what did you do differently? And like, I didn't do one thing differently. I did probably 300 things differently, but it was the way I was thinking about uh-huh. it, approaching it. That. And then after that, I was never the same. I was sold on it. You know, my father is an old Six Sigma uh, total quality management professor type. Uh-huh. I never, I never really believed him, but then I was like, oh, wait a second. Yeah. Maybe there's something to this. I pursued some education uh, and then uh, started doing projects. And then 10 years, 10 years later, you know, mainly working as a physical therapist, I eventually, uh, after building up a repertoire of project experience, I eventually made that transition to doing this full time. Yeah. So I love that. I love that you said, you know, it was a process. Literally, it was a process. You, you found a problem yeah. in your current, in your then current workspace decided how can I solve this problem because that's what I tell clinicians all the time is find a problem where you are solve it and then use that to grow into the next role right yes yes absolutely and we can think of that as kind of the technical side of it but mm-hmm. it's also a social or emotional side of that too mm-hmm. like how motivating is that right that 
you know, a lot of us as clinicians, sometimes we feel powerless, like a lot of things right. are, are, are happening to us or done with us. And we encourage our patients to have internal locus of control, right, to take control of that. But what about us? Or mm-hmm. What control do we have? And so once you start developing that problem solving muscle and you realize that it's a pathway to it, not only to adapt, but to also to innovate uh, and you just stick to it, uh, then yeah. it's pretty amazing. Yeah. So do you have any certifications? I do. I do. So I took a, I took a bunch of different courses. Mm-hmm. I did a lot of like learning on the side and picking people's brains informally. But I also went through a program that took me about a year. And the certification I ended up with is uh, called a, a black belt in Lean Six Sigma or mm-hmm. Lean Six Sigma black belt. Now, I very similar to getting my OCS. I don't see a lot of like value in the certification itself. But there was a lot of value in the forced learning on the process of getting that certification. Very similar to the OCS, right? Mm-hmm. Having an OCS, a lot of people have it. You know, we can have a different, we can have a debate about how useful it is. But all that learning that you did, pathway to getting that OCS, it's, it was very similar um, for my my uh, black belt. So, so, and this is kind of a side note um, sure. because I'm curious. Through that year process of getting the black belt, did you go through the other levels of belts too, or was it specifically just the black? That's a great question. And, and in this in this space, there are people who go through the different levels of belt, and uh-huh. there are people who skip the white to get to the green, or skip uh-huh. the green to get to the black. And I went ahead and skipped right to the black, which is part of the reason it probably took me so long to get it because right. there's other people who take who take it for three months and they get right. the black belt. So there's a lot of various experiences and qualities of training. And what, what I appreciate the most is the coaching with someone who has decades of experience. That's one of the things I got the most out of it. Someone who's going to challenge me, someone who's going to help me see what I can't see on my own. And um, I think that was probably one of the most valuable things. So a lot of my audience will want to know, did you need that certification to get into the process improvement, continuous process improvement job that you have? Did you have it before you got into that job? Did you have it after? Did you need it? What are your thoughts about that? I got it before. Now, was it necessary to get my current job? No, I don't think so. Did it help in terms of the optics on my resume? I think it did. Mm-hmm. But, but was it really necessary? Many of my colleagues do not have belts. Uh-huh. Probably half of my colleagues have belts, half of my half of them don't. So I don't think it's necessary. Okay. I think what's more important is the learning process you go through and how you demonstrate that learning process. Your ability to learn, your ability to learn quickly, and being flexible. So there, there are people who get the certification and they're kind of, you know, stuck in that particular yeah. way of thinking. I believe it's important to borrow from many different ways of thinking. I really love what they do at the IHI for the most part. Uh-huh. I've borrowed a lot of the tools and techniques from IHI. I've borrowed from psychology, from positive deviance, uh-huh. from, from different things and kind of put them together depending on the, the problem that's in front of me. So being able to do that and also demonstrate that when you're looking for a job, that ability to effectively and quickly learn, I think that's probably more important than the exact certification. Yeah, same. I'm glad you said that because the conversation I have with a lot of people is, you know, you get the certification to say you have it. And I have a certification too, so I'm not against certifications. Um, You get the certification to say you have it, but then you can't talk about it at the interview. 
right? Well, you can't say I've done these skills that the certification requires. So for me, the certification I have was more of a validation of the knowledge as opposed to getting the knowledge. You know, yes. that makes sense. A lot of it I learned as I went, exactly. being around people, learning the lingo, kind of doing it. And then I got the certification, right? Yeah, I completely agree. But 80% of the content I already knew and mm-hmm. used before any of the training and testing. So I, I do appreciate the 20%. Yeah. But you're right. There's, there's, it's more like participating in society. And a lot of it depends on like HR departments, right? And especially in the world of quality, it's not always easy for people outside of the quality world to understand what we do. Yes. <laughs> so, so, so certification make it easier to like summarize it and maybe oversimplify it for the folks that maybe are helping to hire people, mm-hmm. but they won't necessarily get it necessarily, right? So. It's funny that you say that because thinking about how I come up with an elevator speech for yes. what I do, when people ask me, what do I do? And it's like, okay, well, I know what I do and other healthcare professionals may know kind of what I do. Not everyone even in healthcare knows about healthcare quality, but then how do I give that elevator speech to someone who is a lay person and doesn't know healthcare quality at all? What do, what do I say yes. to them that helps them understand what I do, right? Yes, absolutely. I've I've struggled with the same thing. I also have my elevator speech, and I find myself having an elevator speech for my family. Yeah, <laughs> elevator exactly. Friends, elevator speech for a clinician or whatever it might be. But yeah, totally. I totally get it. Absolutely. So, what barriers did you encounter when you made that transition into continuous process improvement? Great question. For me, the whole process was very organic. Like I, I never really intended to pivot until it just sort of happened. But like I, I was a as I was be, as I was working as a clinician, I was doing a lot of side projects, uh-huh. and most of the time not getting paid for it. It was like doing uh-huh. stuff in, in between patients. And you know, a lot of people are looking at me sideways, like Neil, why are you working for free? Right? Exactly. Right? And I'm like, I'm not really. This is an investment in the future, in my mind. And so, patience was a big benefit, right? But in terms of barriers, there wasn't a lot of hard barriers. But but I I, I can think of one thing. I think fear, like, and I think there's a couple of ways of looking at it. One is in quality work or continuous improvement, operational excellence. We are equipped with frameworks that enable change. Now, change, people fear being changed, right? So like- <laughs> Absolutely. And, and on top of like, people don't, don't really clearly understand what we do, we come around all enthusiastic about applying all this stuff. And then people are like, hold on a minute. Like, what are you, are you saying? Like, what, what are you saying? You want me to change? Am I, am I doing something wrong or yada, yada? So that, that sort of thing, that inertia yeah. for change, that fear of change, or fear of being changed, that is all over the place. And most of the places I've worked with, even even among really innovative employers, especially among clinicians, that fear was very much there. And so it was hard to sell people on doing some of these projects, even though I'm doing it for free and whatnot, just to build up my, just to build up my, right? So so that, that was another thing. And then on the flip side is fear within myself. Uh-huh. I mean, if I take an honest look in the mirror, there are times where I might be acting or not acting because of hidden fear that uh-huh. I'm not seeing or acknowledging. And I, I think it's important to take a really honest look at yourself to, to realize that the person in the mirror, that is the biggest source of barriers 
more than anything else. No, there's there's a lot of things going on, a lot of things going on in the world, um, and there, there's a lot of challenges and barriers and opportunities for improvement. But uh, but in my own in my own journey, I felt like it was within was the biggest battle. Hi, friend. Are you listening to this podcast wondering how you can start your own journey into healthcare quality? Or maybe you've already started, but you're hitting some roadblocks and getting stuck at the application process. Well, my friend, I've got a free resource for you. After you finish listening to this episode, head on over to my website and grab the ebook, Top Three Mistakes Clinicians Make When Transitioning into a Non-Clinical Role. The link will be in the show notes section. Now, enjoy the rest of the episode. So going back to something you said a little bit earlier, you said at the point, you know, you started changing some stuff and your current workflow with your documentation and making improvements to that. And then you took some courses and you talked to some people and you took the the black belt. That whole process took about 10 years. 10 years, roughly speaking. Yes. Okay. So can you talk people through that so they understand, you know, if if that 10 year process was because you know, I'm running up into barriers with getting the job or was it you saying, I just need to study some more or was it just yeah. timing of things or kind of right. that process? Totally. So like, like, why did it take 10 years? Why did it take yeah. so long? Right? Because 10 years sounds like a long time. <laughs> and the truth is I probably could have done it faster. And I think for me, there's a couple things that made it 10 years. One, I always loved being a PT. So I, mm-hmm. I a lot of my colleagues are burnt out. And for good reason. And a lot of clinicians are jumping ship or, or making transitions or pivoting. And there's a lot of great reasons for that. But I don't feel like I've done that's that I'm in the same situation as that. So right. I, I still love PT. I still love doing the work. Um, I, I do acknowledge that there's some problems in the system. And this is kind of my way of, of kind of handling some of those problems or addressing some of those problems. Right. Trying to work our way towards some real change in health. And so for to me. The whole journey was more like, you know, my thinking as a clinician is slightly tweaked and then uh, it continues improvement. So, like, right. I see the thinking is really similar. The surface level stuff, like tools and artifacts, that looks a lot different. But what's happening in the brain, how I think as a PT is really similar to how I think as a continuous improvement person. So, and just to double back to the question, like, it took me so long. And a lot of it was, I really enjoyed PT. And I stuck mm-hmm. with PT. I like where I was at, doing PT full-time and doing some of the continuous stuff, stuff on, the, on the side. Over time, like my love for the continuous improvement stuff started growing and growing and growing. And so it wasn't that I was leaving one thing for another. It's just my love for another thing grew a little bit more. And so I just, it was really organically how I shifted over there. And so... If yeah. I had more motivation, I think I could have done it faster. Like I think it could have been a, a much shorter journey. Um, yeah. But after 10 years, I had a long list of project management experiences, but most of it quality related and, and leadership, committee leadership, working group leadership. So that, that really helped on the resume. Yeah. And I think that's valuable because like you said, a lot of people are burned out and for good reason. And I think it's okay to also still love therapy or the the PT role, because I think that also keeps you relevant in the continuous process improvement space, right? Because you still know the workflow of the clinician. You still can understand from the ground level um, what kind of things are barriers and what things kind of need to be worked through. And you're not just speaking from theory. So I'm sure that helps to some extent with some of your colleagues or with the people that you're trying to help change, like you were saying. 
or change the process that they say, okay, well, Neil gets it. Absolutely. And I believe that was a really big selling point that helped me get hired, that helped me get considered at multiple places and get hired eventually in in the kind of role that I'm in, is being a clinician. Because for an example, many of my colleagues in my team, they're not clinicians. Most of them are not. Me and one other are the first people to get hired as clinicians. The rest are like industrial engineers. Yep. <laughs> my boss, my boss is an engineer, so right. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, the engineering right? and the, thing, the exactly. Uh, and we have a political science person. We've got several like operational leader types, like management types. So I feel like there is a demand, and I'm predicting there's going to be a growing demand for clinician perspective, clinician background in the space of quality in the space of continuous improvement, especially as the system faces more and more pay for performance instead of pay for service. So all the, all the important stakeholders are saying, we are t- tired of paying for stuff that's not working anymore. Uh-huh. And, and it's going to change. And whether you like it or not, we're going to pay for results instead yeah. of paying for just doing whatever. And so our perspective, our system's perspective our data-driven perspective, um, our streamlining mm-hmm. offerings, I think is going to be an important part of a better future. That's that reason. Absolutely. I mean, we could probably get on a soapbox about this, but we should have we should have been in the at the table quality of patient care yeah. without people who know about patient care. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, that's a whole conversation for another day, but that's something I'm passionate about too, is we need to have a voice at the table as the clinician with the clinical background, with the face-to-face patient background, with the interdisciplinary team, you know, collaboration, all of that. We, like you said, we can think from a systems perspective because that's what we do. We We can think on our feet because that's what we do. Absolutely. A hundred percent. And, and, you know, I think one of the barriers is a lot of, you know, I personally think that the problems we face in healthcare are not super simple. I think it's a pretty complex problem. Right. So it's, it's, a, it's a pretty messy knot to untie. And there's a lot of feelings and a lot of passions mixed up in there. And so for that reason, it's really easy to, to resort to a natural adversarial problem-solving culture, kind of like in a courtroom. Uh-huh. Right? Uh, and I think one of the things that we can bring to the table is a collaborative problem-solving uh, culture. And we don't have to, the stakeholders do not have to be working against each other or negotiating across from each other. We all want the same thing. And yes. we, have, we have scientific thinking. We've got a, a huge growing body of data. Let, let's just point the same direction and, and, and work together collaboratively, kind of like putting a person on the moon, right? It's going to be hard. It's not yeah. going to be easy. But we're not going to get anywhere just in fighting, right? So, oh my gosh, you said it perfectly. So, what advice would you give someone, another clinician, maybe who wants to take the same path that you've taken? They want to get out of patient care, whether there's burnout or they just want to use their clinical skills in a different way. They want to do something different. What advice would you give them? So, I tend to be really an abstract, philosophical kind of person, right? But, but I think that the most useful stuff is really simple. Uh-huh. And, and I think probably the best piece of advice I've ever received is never give up. It sounds simple, but it is much harder. It is hard. Don't give up. Keep learning and don't stop. Keep reflecting and don't stop. 
and face yourself in the mirror in an honest way. So I, I it, it sounds like really philosophical stuff, but it is real. It is true. You will, you may come to a point where you feel alone and you have no one backing you up. In retrospect, you do, uh, but, but but sometimes we feel that way, right? So just keep sticking to it and keep learning. Um, and and maybe more practical advice in terms of like a first practical step to take is take a class, take a course, right? Just get to know what the quality world is about. Clearly define why you're interested in it. So I think it's really helpful to write down a purpose statement. Uh-huh. Um, and write down, write down your what motivates you intrinsically. Write down your intrinsic motivators. What's your purpose? And what change you want to see in the, in the future? The more clearly you can see where you're at, the more clearly you can see where you're going. Write it down and make it as as measurable as possible. Then step by step, the pathway will become more clear. So continuous process improvement for yourself, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> make continuous that, process improvement, uh, yeah. Narrow it down to a specific, definable, kind of data-driven, right? Measurable, you said, step. Measurable, exactly. Step. For me, it was like, I had, I had a lot of feelings about healthcare, right? And waste in healthcare. Mm-hmm. And I had a lot, a lot of feelings. And we all do. We all, we all have our opinions. We all have our feelings about it. And I thought to myself, okay, what's my true north? I want, I, want to, I want to do something to help healthcare improve. That's a little bit vague, right? Uh-huh. And I try, okay, then what are some of the things I can do? Oh, yeah, so I can apply these techniques and these methodologies. Okay, then, okay, when and where can I do it, right? Like, okay, yeah, my, like, like yeah, I, I don't have control over my schedule and it's easy to make excuses. Uh-huh. Okay, what do I have control over? My documentation. There are some things I can do. I have some control over, or it's such a simple thing simple thing as uh-huh. documentation and i'm going to run the experiment and run the experiment and learn and learn and learn okay and then my blast radius is going to get bigger and bigger and then when i have results people will give me permission of more control to try bigger experiments right uh-huh. so so that's a living thing where you write down your purpose statement you write down your true north you write down your intrinsic motivators and then you're going to go back and update that right so that's you you keep learning you keep reflecting and then you change uh, the stuff that you're doing. You want a clear picture, but then you want that to be flexible. And so you, we don't really we don't really learn from experience. We learn from reflecting on our experience. That's John Dewey. We do not learn from experience. We learn from reflecting on our experience. And so, but yeah, it all boils down to it. I love that. That's awesome. Okay, so last two questions. You kind of touched sure. on this first one a little while ago, but what was your defining point? Yes, yes. That my defining point was what I described before. It was roughly about 10 years ago. And at that point, I was 10 years of being a PT and uh, just drowning in work, getting stressed out, not yet burnt out, but on my way to getting burnt out Uh and realizing that my every increment of work, my every cycle of work is also a a kind of scientific experiment, Uh um, which doesn't require a lot of extra work to do. So as long as I could just write it down, track down what I learned from every experiment, that informs the next experiment, that was a defining moment. And for me, that had a huge motivating. It converted me from being a defeatist with lots of excuses uh-huh. to being proactive and being and, and, and trying to be an innovator and to conquer my barriers. That's really good. All right. How can my network support you and the work that you do? Yes, absolutely. Um, I'm sure there's lots of ways that it's possible. And one of the first things that come to my mind is uh, giving us a forum uh, for uh, sharing ideas, 
sharing contacts and opportunities. Um, that's one of the first things that, that comes to mind, but I'm sure that it can grow into more. And just to kind of um, piggyback off that, for those who are watching this who may wonder how Neil and I know each other, so interestingly enough, we went to the same graduate school. We were a class apart and didn't know it at the time until <laughs> now looking back and we were there together and probably had a class together at some point or some sort of uh, discussion or group setting together. Um, this was like several years ago, like 2004. <laughs> yeah, way back. So, so a long time or 2003. Well, probably 2003 because you left, you graduated in 2003. I think so. Yeah. So, to that, and I got there in 2002. So somewhere, somewhere in that 2002, 2003 time frame. And then we reconnected somewhere between LinkedIn and another social chat that we're both on. Yeah. Black. Yeah. <laughs> and black, so yeah. it's so interesting how you just get to meet people or reconnect with people. And going back to what you said about you know, creating opportunities to be able to have these kind of conversations. Um, I think it's super important for people to realize that people like you, people like me, people like other people are willing to connect, have those conversations, share knowledge. It's not a me versus you. There's space for all of us. And, you know, I just, I just wanted to point that out because it just triggered something you said, just triggered me to think, I think sometimes people think, like you said, that they're all alone and there's lots of people who are willing to share advice, share knowledge, give tips and and really so that people don't have to feel alone. Yes, you you are not alone and somebody out there believes in you. Yeah, You you are not alone and somebody believes in you. And so that's why connections are so important. Right. Because you start to see how awesome people are. It's not just politics. It's not just, mm-hmm. you know, opportunities, but you start to see the potential in people and how much potential you can unlock in others. Mm-hmm. And that comes around and just benefits everybody. Absolutely. Well, I am so glad that we reconnected and I'm so thankful that you came on this chat with me to talk to my audience and to really just share your story. I love what you had to say. So thank you so much, Neil, again, for thank being you. here. Absolutely. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you for, you know, staying up late to do this and and making this happen and for everything that you do. It's much appreciated. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining in. Your support means everything. Be sure to subscribe to the show, share this episode with your friends and colleagues, and rate the podcast on whatever podcast platform you're listening on. I'd love to hear from you, so find me on LinkedIn at BrandyDPT or on my website at www.definingpointcc.com. Enjoy the rest of your day.